Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Nafling. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, it's Cole. Thanks for tuning in. My two sons, Avery and Dorian, started at a new school last week. We were home at dinner the evening before their first day, and it was, of course, all anyone could talk about. As we were chatting about what they were excited for or nervous about, it occurred to us that they might need to introduce themselves in front of their new first and second grade classes. So we started to use the time to do a little practice. The first instances of their introductions were probably what you'd expect. Hello, my name is Dorian, and I am six years old, and my favorite color is light green. Which is fine, but there's an opportunity to do more. My husband, Randy, encouraged each of them to think about three things that are special about them, and then work those things into their introductions. But then he took things an unexpected step further, introducing the concept of the memory palace. Now, not sure if you're familiar. If not, there's a fantastic book I recommend by Joshua Four called Moonwalking with Einstein. The memory palace is a strategy for memorizing or remembering things. We actually imagine yourself in a place that you know really well like the house you grew up in. And then you place objects around it as you walk through to aid in your memory. Then you retrace your path to bring them back into your mind. And apparently the crazier the items are, the easier they are to remember. I'm probably not doing that justice. You should read the book. Anyway, coming back to our dinner conversation, Dorian had identified the three interesting anecdotes that he wanted to share. First, that he moved here to Milwaukee two years ago from San Francisco. Second, that he has nine chickens. And finally, that he likes to collect animal babies. He has an interesting obsession with those cabbage patch dolls that are dressed like various animals. (laughs) So leaning into the memory palace concept, Randy told Dorian to imagine himself standing on the Golden Gate Bridge, his nine chickens racing toward him, an animal baby riding each. Did I mention that Dorian is six? In his next introduction iteration, he told a story about that time he was standing on the Golden Gate Bridge as chickens were running by. (laughs) I refer to this instance, lovingly, as the memory palace fail. So we abandoned that and turned instead to good old-fashioned practicing. Dorian and Avery took turns delivering their introductions a few times to the dinner party, and we offered them feedback. Randy even recorded each of them delivering their respective introductions so they could watch them back and self-critique. Let's have a quick listen to Avery's. My name is Avery. I'm from Milwaukee, although I spent most of my life in San Francisco. My favorite food is actually roasted cauliflower and roasted Brussels sprouts. I also, my favorite colors are red, yellow, and also blue and black. I hope you'll be my friend. 
Now, after all that work, they didn't actually end up introducing themselves to the class. They did, however, have a fantastic first day and first week of school. And I like to think that they may have pulled a piece here or there from their practice intros as they were meeting new friends. Being able to introduce yourself eloquently and in a way that captures and keeps your intended recipient's attention is a hugely important thing, not only in the first and second grade, but in the grown-up world too. And learning to do so has benefits that reach far beyond the introduction itself. Hi, my name is Cole, and I tell stories with data. I have said those words standing in front of unfamiliar faces literally thousands of times over the past decade. I have done that despite being an introvert and definitely not considering myself to be one of those naturally stand in front of people and talk comfortably kind of person. Now, that didn't happen by accident. It happened through careful planning and practice. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to help others craft their introductions as well, specifically members of the Storytelling with Data team. We've actually spent a good amount of time on this. And that's because the way that we introduce ourselves, whether formally on a stage or in daily life, can have a profound impact on the way that others perceive us. And yet, I think it's relatively rare that people give much thought to it. So for those who thought they were tuning in to hear about data, don't give up on this yet. It turns out that there are ways we can think about and plan how we talk about ourselves that can be useful for effectively talking about our data as well. And we can flip that around. We can use some of the same planning strategies that we do for our data stories to craft a compelling introduction as well. That is what we're going to focus on today introducing yourself, and more specifically, how to put together a robust and compelling narrative about you that you can pull from for any of your introduction needs. Let's start by thinking about some common scenarios where we might need to introduce ourselves. First, there's the obvious, or at least the instance where we probably do put the most concentrated thought into how we introduce ourselves, uh, a formal presentation. Right? This might be up on stage or in front of a room of people. Thinking more about the everyday, you may need to introduce yourself in a business meeting with a new client, or perhaps you're pitching something to an investor. You introduce yourself when you are meeting someone socially for the first time. Also at networking events, for example, a meetup or user group. You need to be able to talk about yourself during job interviews. There are, of course, other situations, too. When we consider the breadth of these scenarios, you'll obviously focus on different aspects of yourself and go into varying levels of detail for each. But if you start by really thinking through and creating a robust introduction of yourself, you'll find you can pull from this to meet the needs of basically any scenario. So we're soon going to talk about the process that I recommend going through to do just that. Before we do, though, I mentioned this. Introducing oneself is something that everyone on the Storytelling with Data team has had to do. For Elizabeth, it was back in 2017. We were in Washington, D.C., getting ready to deliver a few workshops together for the very first time. 
And this was really the first time that she needed to introduce herself in the context of her role with storytelling with data. And I remember us sitting in a hotel room with some of our go-to supplies, a big piece of paper, multicolored post-it notes, Sharpies, trying to map out the components of her introduction and how they could fit together, practicing it. But it was feeling a little flat. It needed a hook, some tension. Let's actually give it a listen and see if you can identify what Elizabeth incorporated for this. Hi, it's Elizabeth. Over the course of my career, I've held numerous analytical roles in various industries, everything from the pharmaceutical industry to the retail to most recently the financial services industry. And as part of my various roles, they've all had one thing in common. I'm analyzing data and then communicating it to someone else. Now, initially, this was the type of role that I really enjoyed. I'm a very analytical person, and I love the challenge of just looking at a bunch of data to figure out what are the interesting things? What is someone eventually going to care about? But over time, I started to get really frustrated with my roles because I would spend a ton of time on my analysis. I would do so much work. And then I would go to share it with business partners, and I would hear things like, Oh, well, that's interesting. Thanks, Elizabeth. And they would move on. Or I'm even more frustrating. They would start asking me for more data and more data and more data. And it would start the cycle of analysis paralysis, where at points, all I was doing was just pushing out data and reports and nothing was really happening with it. And that was so frustrating to me to see all of the hard work that's done behind the scenes, not just by me, but my colleagues who were pulling the data together. So it was at one point in my career that I stopped, I did a little self-reflection, and what I found was interesting. Some of the problem was me in the way that I was communicating with data. Because when you consider all of the steps in the analytical process, from gathering the data to cleaning it to organizing it, we tend to rush through the very last step in the process, the actual communication. That communication is typically the only part of the entire process that our audiences see. So once I recognized this and came to terms with it, I started to learn data storytelling best practices. And over time in my career, as I got better at implementing these practices, I noticed a change. Slowly, people had stopped asking for more data, more data, more data. And we were not just talking about the data, but what to do with it. And that was so exciting to me to see that transformation that I decided to leave the financial services industry and join Storytelling with Data, where this is all I do now is talk to groups and individuals around the world when it comes to how do we be more effective when communicating with data. The initial tension was that leaders weren't acting on her hard work. There's another twist when she realizes that the problem was not them, but rather her. Having identified these pieces, we were able to plot everything else using the narrative arc, setting context up front, introducing, and then resolving that tension. Mike and Alex had a very different introduction-forming experience. <laughs> they joined Storytelling with Data at the same time, and during their first week, we had a team offsite here in Milwaukee. As part of this, we asked them to draft their introductions on day one and then subsequently run through them with the broader group every day of the offsite, with the rest of us giving feedback and offering suggestions. 
And now looking back, I can see how this might have been a bit intimidating. Uh, Alex actually refers to this as her new hire hazing. But they powered through, overcoming nerves and taking candid feedback gracefully. Let's have a listen. My name's Mike. I'm a data storyteller at Storytelling with Data. So I feel it's only appropriate that I tell you a story about data. The year was 1982. My fellow fourth graders and I went down to our school's computer lab to take a job aptitude test. We filled out some forms on our computers, and then a few weeks later, we got back some lists of jobs that we would probably enjoy or excel at when we were adults. That is to say, my friends got lists of jobs. They got lists 40, 50 jobs long of what they would enjoy doing as adults. I got six. Six jobs that I would be satisfied with. And they fell into these three categories. There were analyst jobs like statistician and actuary. By the way, every nine-year-old dreams of growing up to be an actuary. But there were also technical jobs, computer programmer, graphics programmer, and there were creative jobs, artist and writer. Now, in my professional career, it's interesting that I ended up doing a number of these jobs in real life. I spent a number of years as an analyst for the federal government, mostly for the intelligence community, but I was also an editor of travel guides. I wrote for a magazine of parents of kids with disabilities. I also built websites in the energy industry and in the entertainment industry. But in all of these jobs, I was only somewhat fulfilled. Whenever I was doing analysis jobs, I wanted to do the creative jobs or the technical jobs or vice versa. It wasn't until I discovered this field of data visualization, of communicating effectively with data, that I realized this is what I'm meant to be doing. This is what requires us to put all of these things together. We need to have those analytic skills to find things in our data, to find those insights. And then we have to have the creative skills in order to use our verbal skills and our visual skills to communicate these things to somebody else. And we have to have the technical ability to use our tools to effectively build these communications. So I tell you this for a couple of reasons. One, I want you to witness the fearsome predictive power of an Apple II clone from 1982. But the second reason is because I need you to understand that this computer had all of the information, but all it could tell me was facts. It could only give me data back. It couldn't tell the story because a machine, a computer, is never going to be able to tell the whole story. People tell stories. Mike tells us a story. Additionally, you almost can't not listen because of his cadence. There's good variation in pace and volume, great use of pauses. You'll notice these things in Alex's as well. She also integrated something unexpected into her intro. See if it surprises you like it did the rest of us the first time she threw it out there. Hi, my name is Alex, and my background has only ever been in the data world. So I started off with math, specifically statistics, branched into a number of different data engineering roles, and eventually found my way back into what I like to call front-end analytics or business analytics. Now, throughout all of these different quantitative roles, one thing became pretty apparent to me. Those that were the most technical weren't the most successful. 
it was the ones that were really good communicators. And I witnessed this time and time again on the job, even in different organizations. But my first revelation actually happened in a space completely unrelated to data. So if I take you back years ago, when I woke up one morning and had a brilliant idea, I was going to become a dance fitness instructor. Now at that time in my life, I was pretty confident. I was hitting the gym a ton, so I was actually in shape. Also somebody who's been blessed with a little bit of rhythm, so I can dance. All of the technical skills for me to be good at this role were there, but I wasn't. And I really had to learn the hard way that it was gonna take a lot more than some interesting choreography, some fresh music for people to wanna to attend my class. I had to really learn to think about what my audience wanted from me. That meant using music that was familiar to them and moves that were really quite simple. Now, the good news for me is that this lesson didn't just serve me in my very short-lived dance fitness career. When I brought this audience perspective into my analytical work, I also started to see success. Realized that if I wanted people to pay attention to my insights, my analysis, I had to break it down for them. I had to make it simple and relevant for them. So that's what I spend my time doing now, right? teaching others how they can communicate their work with their intended audience and make their audience excited about what they're saying. Now, dance fitness is not something I would naturally associate with data storytelling, but she was able to identify an anecdote super personal to her and deliver it in a relevant way. And this helps form a personal connection. And it actually does this to an even greater extent in person uh, because she does a little shoulder roll when she talks about having rhythm that's super endearing. I share these simply so you can hear some concrete examples of introductions and ask you to reflect on where they were similar and different, what aspects you liked or perhaps didn't resonate with you. And to put them into context, these are the introductions that they use when they're in person, in front of an audience, delivering a workshop. Uh, these days, they typically pull shorter versions to introduce themselves in our virtual sessions. And I already gave a bit of insight into some of the tactics that the team used in creating their introductions. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to share the full process that you can use to craft your own introduction. Wondering how to help your team learn and develop in today's environment? Are you looking for innovative ways to drive engagement and take data storytelling to the next level? The Storytelling with Data team is bringing a wide range of sessions to organizations around the world, virtually, including our 60-minute webinars that deliver practical tips to our half-day foundational or targeted workshops that bring to life the data storytelling lessons using your company's DataViz examples. Let us help bring your team together virtually to connect and learn to be better data storytellers. Visit storytellingwithdata.com and click attend. That's storytellingwithdata.com and click attend. Welcome back. Before the break, we talked about the power of a potent introduction and heard some examples, both from my kids and from the Storytelling with Data team. Next, let's turn our attention to you. I'll outline a process you can use to form your own inspirational introduction. Remember those various scenarios we talked about at the onset for when you need to introduce yourself? 
they're each a little different and may call for varying focus, level of detail, length. And so the strategy I typically recommend is to start by forming the full-fledged, most robust version of your introduction. Then you can easily pull different variations from this. For example, I went to a startup event in Milwaukee shortly after moving here. And at one point, they gathered everyone and asked each person as we went around the room to introduce themselves to the group and share their name and a single simple sentence describing what they do. When my turn arrived, I said, my name is Cole, and I help people make graphs that make sense. It was only because I had a robust introduction uh, in my head that I was able to recall and then quickly articulate that punchy line. And it sounds simple, but getting there can be challenging. And it's something I'll also encourage you to do as part of this as well. All right, enough prelude. Let me walk you through how to craft your introduction a la storytelling with data. I recommend first listening to the whole process, and then you can listen back and pause and work through it step by step. I'll also share where you can access these steps written down to read and work through after we talk through it. And though I'll talk about these steps in an order that makes sense to me, this is definitely one of those mix and match situations where I'll encourage you to undertake the parts that are going to be most useful to you. I'll also talk through it linearly, but this need not be and will likely not be a simple path from start to finish as you craft your introduction. Rather, you'll likely find yourself iterating and possibly going back to prior steps as you flesh out the details and get it really smooth and like something you're happy with. So the first activity I recommend is to consider the impression you'd like to make. Right? If the person or people you're introducing yourself to were to describe you to someone else after you give your introduction, what words would they use? In thinking about this, don't focus on reactions to your content, right, the words you're saying, but rather their perceptions of you. What adjectives would you like your audience to use to describe you? Maybe things like confident or credible, passionate. List at least 10 adjectives. After you've done that, if you have a specific audience or scenario that you're doing this for, step back and think about what motivates that specific audience, what drives them and why they do or don't do things. What do they care about? What's at stake for them? If helpful, review and complete the big idea worksheet, and I'll link to that in our show notes. If you're crafting your introduction without a specific scenario and audience, think generally about what you think the people you're introducing yourself to will care about or be inspired by. Now, taking all of this into account, prioritize the perceptions you'd like to create. So you've just considered your audience's motivations. Now go back to that list of adjectives you made. Are there any new perceptions that you'd add or eliminate? Make those changes. Then out of your full list, determine which three or maybe four perceptions are the most important for you to get across to your audience. Next, identify experiences you've had that will demonstrate these perceptions. So take those most important perceptions you just selected and consider your current 
role, right? Your work, your projects, the history experiences, what anecdotes or points of evidence or stories might you share that would help get one or more of these ideas, these perceptions across? Are there other ways you can illustrate them? Write down the thoughts that come to mind. Next, you want to brainstorm potential content for your introduction. So you already sort of started doing that in the last step, but here I find it helpful to use sticky notes. Uh, cut up blank paper would also work, where you write down an idea per note on the different potential parts of your introduction. And you'll edit in the next step, so for now, generate ideas freely. These might be specific experiences, roles, projects. Also include the notes for the anecdotes, stories, and experiences that you identified when thinking about how to demonstrate your selective perceptions. And don't worry about order or how it all fits together. We'll do that next. Related to this, you may check out the storyboarding exercise in the Storytelling with Data community. So after you've taken some time to brainstorm, you've got all your ideas out there, next it's time to arrange and edit your ideas. So you'll get everything out in a way that you can see it all and start to arrange. So related to this, I'd advise you to consider how you want to structure the overall story of you. Related to this, there's an article on our site titled The Structures of Story that I recommend reading. I'll stick that in our show notes as well. But connected to that, you'll want to think about how will you start and end. Right? Think back to the motivations you may have identified that drive your audience or the anecdote that I shared from Elizabeth's example. Right? What's the hook or tension that you can use to get your audience's attention? How and where will it fit in with the rest of the pieces? Also, while you're doing this, start a discard pile and start freely eliminating ideas you've generated that don't fit with your overall story. At the end of this step, you should have a basic plan of attack for the main points you'll make over the course of your introduction and the general order. But you want to be open to continuing to rearrange that in the next step which is to practice out loud. Start talking, using the plan of attack you created in the prior step to get the words right for your intro. If helpful, you can write it out at this point. I think Alex and Mike both did that, if I think back when we were uh, starting to practice their introductions. But I'd say rather than memorize a script, it can be useful to know the main points that you want to hit and then practice out loud a number of times to help identify the words and phrases and connectors that will allow you to get your ideas across and move from one part to the next. And you'll find the more you do this, the more you find different ways to connect and, and eloquent ways to connect your ideas or points. Actually, related to this, uh, one of the podcasts is titled Say It Out Loud, uh, which is one I recommend checking out. And this feels awkward, by the way, at first, but gets easier and smoother with practice. And once you've committed your ideas to memory, then you can start playing with the nuances of your delivery, right? And then you want to think back to what you heard in Mike and Alex's intros or cadence, pausing for emphasis, speeding up at points to demonstrate excitement, varying volume. Also, if your audience will see you, consider how you're moving, right? Will you be standing up, moving around, using your hands? Practice those things as well. After you've done that and you have a good flow for your introduction, you're feeling good about it, 
record yourself. Do not skip this step. Watch and listen and make notes about what you would like to refine. Note any filler words you're using, work to eliminate them, and repeat this step as needed. Use your observations to continue to hone your content and delivery. Once you're good there, highly recommend getting feedback. Seek input from others. Explain your goals and ask them to imagine the perspective of your audience. If there are specific points of feedback you'd like about your content or delivery, prepare the feedback giver with that. Then give your introduction as if they are your intended audience. Following that, have a conversation about what worked well, where you might make changes. As you do this, try not to interrupt or be defensive. Rather, listen and ask questions. Then refine based on the feedback or repeat with others if helpful. And finally, iterate. <laughs> as mentioned, though I've talked through this as a smooth process, you will likely find yourself revisiting steps or pulling something in from a prior step later in the process. Let it be fluid. The goal is to crush your introduction and leave your audience with a fantastic impression. So use the combination of tips and strategies that will enable you to do just that. Once you have your full intro done, it can be useful to put some time constraints on it. How would you introduce yourself if you had only two minutes or 30 seconds or a single simple sentence like the constraint I faced? Practice these versions too. Then you'll be ready to face basically any scenario in which you need to introduce yourself. So you've heard some example intros and a process you can pull from to craft your own thoughtful introduction. Next, I encourage you to take the time to do just that. By the way, if you'd like to see the steps I just talked through listed out, you can find them in the latest Storytelling with Data community exercise titled Craft Your Introduction. Before you tackle that, however, let's shift to some listener Q&A. Amy writes, my colleague at work recently discovered dot plots and has started using them regularly. I'm not convinced of their greatness. What is a good scenario in which to use a dot plot? Uh, that's a good question. And uh, first, let's get straight on what we mean when we're saying dot plot, because there are several types. Uh, the two that I see most commonly used in a business setting are a Cleveland dot plot and a connected dot plot. And you can think of these like bar chart replacements where the dot or circle encodes the value. So this would be the end point of a bar. And typically this is across various categories. And that's the Cleveland dot plot, or I think probably what people are most commonly referring to when they say simply dot plot. The connected dot plot plots two or more data series across categories and then connects them visually, typically with a, a line or a bar or arrow. So I think some benefits with dot plots, uh, one is that you free up the constraint of having to have a zero baseline the way that you do with bars. So if all of your values are um, centered in one area, you can actually zoom in um, because the, the focus is more on the comparison between them versus distance from baseline. Also, if you consider dot plot versus bars, they use less ink, right? Because they're not plotting an entire bar. They're just plotting the endpoint, which means you're left with more white space. If you want to annotate or do other things, there'd be more room for that because they, they're sort of lighter feeling. 
but also just something different, right? If you're looking for an alternative to a bar chart, it could be something to try. Uh, potential cons, though, is they are less common. So an unfamiliar audience may find them confusing or off-putting. And they don't, they're not so intuitive for all data. Uh, but, and they are more intuitive for some data. For example, if we think of use cases uh, that might work well for dot plots, survey data often lends itself well. Steve Wexler has some great examples of uh, dot plots for survey data, comparison between groups, change between points in time, uh, specifically change between two points in time can sometimes be useful in a dot plot. And actually, to see a ton of examples of dot plots, check out the Storytelling with Data Challenge plots with dots. There's some other things in there too, some scatter plots, but you'll find some dot plots there. Also, check out our chart guide series, uh, specifically the post, What is a Dot Plot? That actually highlights some of the dot plots from the challenge that I just mentioned. You'll find that at storytellingwithdata.com slash chart dash guide. Dan writes, your podcast regarding constraints was fantastic. I loved it. Time, tool, and space constraints. However, one of the constraints I can't do much about, and the only one I cannot deal with in any other way to accept it, is the audience constraint. When I need to address any audience, in order to succeed, I need to restrict myself to a limited amount of statistical knowledge, limited range of graphical solutions, certain vocabulary, and tone. I need to be empathetic to resonate with my audience. Your mentioned time tool space constraints only have higher bound limits. My mentioned constraint applies to both ends becoming even more restrictive. I cannot go below an accepted level. I cannot go above an accepted level. I cannot succeed when I'm the one with the limited knowledge, so it's possible that I can't rise to the occasion as well. I can buy some time, work late, skip my own entertainment time, delay the output. I can develop tools if existing options are not enough. I can efficiently gain some design space, but I can never control the constraint coming from the knowledge compatibility with my audience. This is for me my biggest constraint and challenge. Knowing my audience, education level, expectations makes me more prepared, prepared to deal with the only constraint I can not ignore or adjust in any way. Thanks, Dan. I love this. Uh, audience is such an important factor when we communicate data. And actually, if we think of each time we communicate data as a puzzle, where the pieces are typically a little different each time, we're trying to make them all fit together, I would consider audience to often be that most critical piece of the puzzle. And it's funny because constraints, or the word constraint uh, even, I think can sometimes have negative connotation, but I don't think that it should. And it's actually why I called that particular podcast episode you're referring to the beauty of constraints. The audience constraint is a beautiful one. And you're right, it is a challenging one. To make what we want to communicate happen, we really have to be thoughtful about them who they are, what they care about, their data literacy or graphicacy or technical know-how, their subject matter expertise or lack thereof, their potential biases. Sometimes we know all of this and sometimes we have to make assumptions. My suggestion is each time you communicate something to someone else, pause to think about that person or group of people and reflect on these things. Consider how can you make what you need to communicate work first and foremost for them? 
And this sounds like an altruistic thing, but it's by making what we're doing work for our audience that we can ultimately get their attention, maintain it, and, and get what we need to happen to happen, right? For them to understand something in a new way or make a decision, have a conversation. For much more about audience, uh, various related considerations and ways to get to know an unfamiliar audience, have a listen to the last episode of the podcast called It's For Them. After you have a listen, Dan, I'd of course be happy to chat further, so feel free to reach out. Katie posed a question in the community. I'll link to the conversation in the show notes. She writes, I added submission to the recent exercise on TED Talks. Side note for me, this is a fun one. Uh, you're asked to watch a TED Talk and really focus on the speaker and taking note of what they do well that you might be able to incorporate into your own delivery. I asked for suggestions of role models and examples of speakers who use pace and pausing really effectively. I am naturally a very fast talker, which is exaggerated when I'm passionate and energized about what I'm talking about. Has anyone got examples they can share of people who I could learn from in order to slow down a bit and take effective pauses? So Jonathan, a fellow community member, already shared some great tips. As for my advice, I'd start by getting really specific on how you want to slow down. And this may sound like splitting hairs, but I think it can help to make more concentrated effort and progress. Do you want to slow your overall pace or have more variation or integrate more pauses or something else? If you can identify the specific aspect you want to change, then you can employ strategies that will help and be really direct about what feedback you might get from others as part of the process. You mentioned that you get fast when you're excited, and I actually think that's a really good thing, right? When speaking in front of others, you don't want to hide that evidence of your passion, but rather punctuate and control it in ways that will help you keep your audience's attention and engagement and ensure they can keep up with you. And this might mean intentionally slowing down to explain something, for example, but then letting your speed increase as you get to your point. Then pause. In this way, your fast-talking excitement can be contained by space on either side. And when it comes to pauses, I'll share a couple of specific tricks. First, if you're presenting virtually, just put a sticky note with the word pause written on it in your line of sight. If you're not virtual, if you have any notes you're referring to, you can add reminders to pause there too. I can distinctly remember having highlighted scribbles to myself in the margins of early presentation notes that said things like, pause, breathe, look at the audience. <laughs> On the topic of pauses, pausing for emphasis can work really well. And it feels uncomfortable at first, or at least it did for me, but with practice, it starts to become second nature and can actually be a lot of fun. So for this, it can be helpful to plan in a presentation when you're going to do it, right? When you're going to pause for emphasis. And then I remember counting in your head to make sure you pause long enough because pauses always feel longer for the speaker than they do for the audience. So if you want to say something and then pause for emphasis, count at least to three slowly before moving on to the next thing. Finally, I'd suggest simply remembering to breathe. If you're breathing deeply as you speak, it forces you to take time 
not speaking. <laughs> Full breaths also can help calm nerves and voice shakiness in case either of those are a concern. And as an exercise, you can try presenting part of your materials at half the pace that you normally would. Take a full breath after each sentence. And this is exaggerated, but it'll give you a feel for slowing down. And to the point that Jonathan made, the more you practice, the more you can bring aspects of your learning into all of your presentations. These are just a couple of thoughts. Uh, I did a virtual event recently focused on presenting data, emphasis on presenting, in case you'd like to check out the video. That's open to premium in the community. And I'm looking forward to continuing to follow the community conversation to see tips that others share there too. I'll link to that in the show notes. Thanks to everyone who posts questions. If you're listening and have a question, the best place to ask it is in the Storytelling with Data community. Visit community.storytellingwithdata.com and click talk to browse discussions or start your own. This way, members of the Storytelling with Data team as well as the broader community can weigh in. And you may hear my thoughts here on the podcast too. With that, thanks very much for tuning in. Before we wrap, a couple quick updates. The current Storytelling with Data Challenge is a fun one. We invite you to visualize your resume. There's already been a great variety of fun approaches. Check those out, plus add your own to the mix by January 31st. This is 2021. Details at community.storytellingwithdata.com. I'll be talking with John Schwabish, author of the book Better Presentations and the soon-to-be-published Better Data Visualizations. I had an early chance to read it, and it's great. John and I will be talking about all sorts of graphs, his new video series, and more. I invite you to watch live, and if you'd like, you can even help direct our conversation with your questions. This will take place January 19th at 4 p.m. Eastern. Registration details in the show notes. It'll also be recorded and released as our next episode of the podcast. We have another live virtual event coming up on January 26th when I'll be talking about how to become a data visualization superstar. This will include do's and don'ts for establishing yourself as an invaluable resource, tactics for setting good goals, leading by example, and getting the support you need to become or help members of your team become a data visualization and storytelling superstar followed by Q&A. That's open to premium members of the Storytelling with Data community. Details at community.storytellingwithdata.com slash premium. There are also a ton of free resources in the Storytelling with Data community. If you're not already a member and developing data visualization, communication, or storytelling skills is on your list of goals for 2021, this is the place to be. There you'll find ways to practice, get feedback, discover great work, and more. Join us and access a community of support for your learning. That's at community.storytellingwithdata.com. Speaking of support, if you like what you hear here, please subscribe and share with a friend. With that, be sure to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Also check out all the great resources at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>